All right, this is Congress Two Beers In. My name is Josh Huter. I'm a senior fellow with the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. I'm with my colleagues, Matt Glassman. How you doing? And Mark Harkins. Good afternoon. And we have ourselves some New Belgium Fat Tire, the Belgian-style ale. This is a fantastic yeah. amber beer. I'm this was a tough find once upon a time. Ten, once, ten years ago, this was like yeah. something, something out west that you hadn't really tried, but you right. heard about. And now it's... Uh, now it's at every gas station in Northern Virginia. So there, <laughs> there you go. That's exactly right. Uh, it's gotten a little bit more broad, right? This was like the more mythical Coors at one point in time. Like yeah. Coors, like, oh, right. it's cold beer. Right, Cannonball Run, the 2000 edition exactly. was fat time. My dad has stories about the Coors. I'm like, I got a bitch, I got a thing of Coors. And it's like, <laughs> cold. it's cold. And I'm like... So, and to me, in like 1990-something, I'm like, this this is this was exciting to you? Like, cold, like air-conditioned beer they're like yeah <laughs> okay and now uh here we are we were just talking about how spoiled we are in the first hour but anyway you realize um, that they bought a river in new jersey in virginia and renamed it right no yeah no. they did What's so this? when they started when course started to brew on the east coast at first they had to it was rocky mountain spring water right that's their big thing so they got a tributary in virginia and renamed it rocky mountain that spring. sounds like 80s urban legend to me oh what? probably yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right up there with like oh yeah just take a shower and have some coffee you'll sober up it's 1982 who cares <laughs> speaking of sobering up yeah anyway uh, so we've got a few things going on in Congress. Uh, first and foremost, the president uh, should be announcing something on tariffs now? Question right. mark? Something. Um, something. A proclamation. Right. We don't know what or to what effect or to what end, but there's been a lot of uh, questions about exactly what's Congress's role and right. what is Congress's role? Question mark. So I think the, the, the basic thing to point out here is that the authority the president's using to enact these tariffs uh, are certainly within his discretion, but they're not within his constitutional discretion. These are statutory authorities given to him by Congress over trade policy, uh, and perhaps smartly so by Congress to give the president discretion, uh, particularly the exception he's using is statutorily the national security exception. And the right. idea behind this would be that America needs to have war-making capacity, and uh, if other countries are uh, producing uh, the basic elements of war at a price that uh, erodes our homegrown industries, we could be at a major disadvantage of some global war to break out. So, for instance, if the Canadians were not our friends and we were considering a war against Canada and we were dependent on them for steel, it could become a problem <laughs> in theory. Yeah, or at mainly, least... mainly because what we would do is we'd be shuttering our industries. Yeah. And, that, and it takes a while for this to, to come back around again, and then that tempo would be a problem. And, that, and that's the idea behind the law. And, uh, but the law does give the president the discretion to set tariffs for a variety of reasons on uh, foreign goods of a variety of types. And the president has announced his intent to use this discretion, and it seems like he's the only person in Washington who wants to do this. Uh, him and uh, Mr. Navarro and... Uh, uh, People in the Rust Belt. Yes. And uh, Republicans in the, in the Commerce Secretary, right, and Tim Ryan in Youngstown. Um, so the question is, uh, you know, you see 100 Republicans have come out against this or something like that. 100 congressional Republicans sent a letter or back-channeled. Or, there was some number I saw in the papers, 100, 100 Republicans. And the question is, what, what will Congress do? There seems to be some pressure. It looks like the president is backing off a little bit. Uh, he said Canada and Mexico will be exempt from this at the outset. And now we're talking about this proclamation, which may be a vague symbolic move as opposed to an actual use of his authority under the statutory uh, discretion given to him by Congress. But what should Congress do? What can Congress do? Well, so with all things with Congress, right, especially since we've got, an, uh, we've got an omnibus appropriations bill hopefully coming down mm -hmm. the road, 
they can put policy in there that says thou shalt not. I mean, they can re- rescind the authority that they gave to the president because, as Matt said, it's not constitutional. Yeah. It's legislative. And so they can do away with the legislation. And, you know, when you have these kind of majorities who are in favor, we saw this most recently um, with Russian sanctions. Right? Yep. The president was very much wasn't going to do it. And Congress said, the douche you say, you shall do it. Right. And they passed a bill, which he ultimately had to sign because – it passed 95 to 5 right. kind of numbers. So that's the easiest thing they can do. Now, whether right. they'll get to that point and snub his nose in it, it's unclear. Well, it's going to depend on what he does, right? And let's let's rewind real quick and remember why the president has this authority. It's not at all unusual for Congress to start delegating trade authority in order sure. for presidents to go out and negotiate trade deals. Congress is not an effective trading negotiator, right? right. There are right. too many people. They have too many different viewpoints. Uh, nothing would get done. So they delegate this authority to the president. They put in some parameters on what the president can and cannot negotiate through what we call trade promotion authority in many circumstances. That enables the president to then go make a trade deal with foreign countries based on the parameters that are outlined in law. As long as it meets those parameters, you can bring it to Congress and they can pass it or kill it by a majority vote. Right? These expedited procedures. Um, so the ability of or the the willingness of Congress to delegate this sort of authority, whether national security or otherwise, on trade deals um, is pretty universal nowadays. Um, what's unusual is that the president is now using this in a manner in which Congress disapproves pretty clearly. Right? right? Well, it's not just Congress either it's his entire administration for the most part he has very few people on his side even within the white house uh within the eop and within the executive branch um and i do think this shows the limitations of the president being able to act outside the boundaries of his party his advisors the other principal actors in the government it really looks like this is going to be watered down at best and to me that that's the best way to go about this stuff yes congress could slap him down and pass a law uh, setting, you know, specific policies on steel tariffs, saying, no, you can't do this, Mr. President. But it looks like informal pressure is going to be moving things to begin with. Yeah. Uh, whether that's enough, who knows? And what's fascinating is in the past, for most presidents, they don't force Congress to use this informal authority in public after the fact. Mm-hmm. Normally, they're going to start the negotiation. Right. They're going to have their guys right. talk to the guys on the Hill. It just never gets to this level. Right. It never, Or it never comes out to public at this level. Right. Right. So normally, this is the kind of stuff that happens behind closed doors. And that's what's so different about this particular president. He doesn't do anything behind a closed door. Um, and that has caused him some strife. But at other points, it allows him to reach out to his what he believes is his constituency uh, in a much clearer manner without having to go through quote unquote the swamp of Washington. I mean this is a very this is a very strange policy and I don't I don't ever claim to be an expert on trade policy or economics or tariff policy particularly, but this is a relatively small sector of the economy. It's not something where he's gaining a lot on the actual, you know, steel interest that can help this. It's much more a symbolic America first policy, um, trying to appeal to a broader base. But I don't think you can find anyone across the political spectrum who thinks these sorts of targeted industrial tariffs are good for the American economy. In fact, most people think they're just downright bad and will have negative consequences quite quickly for consumers, for the stock market, for other industries, for foreign relations. And so this strikes me as a pretty stubborn move by the president to do this in the face of of all these kind of uh, competing actors. One of my favorite things to talk about is it's 
what kind of I, I love a good interbranch war over something. So um, one of the things that I've been playing around in my head are the different ways in which Congress could combat this should they want to. So yep. Everybody's like, oh well, what can Congress do? I'm like, literally, there are an infinite amount of possibilities of ways that Congress could hamstring this president and prevent him from actually going through this should he actually go through with this. Yep. Um, so I was playing around with some of these ideas. Like you could, what Mark said, you could scrap the law itself, right? right? You could simply say that this order is not in effect, or we could do some more fun things. Say on like an omnibus appropriations bill that's going to have to pass in a week, which you could say, uh, no funds shall be used in, from this bill to implement any increased tariffs on so-and-so or whatever it may be. Um, there are some other ways to do it. You guys guys got any ideas on how we could just absolutely hamstring the president? Well, I mean, there's the, there's the basic informal mechanisms that the Republican Party has, which is that you reverse your tariff policy and we'll start confirming judges again or things like that. But those kind of cut right. against the interests right. of kind of the Republicans Everybody. qua Republicans because they want right. to do those things too. But I mean, that sort of informal pressure, um, I think, you know, can be brought to bear cross issue uh, because this is really the kind of thing that's rubbing a lot of Republicans the wrong way directly um, and a lot of the interests they represent directly. And so it doesn't strike me as the kind of place where it would be crazy for individual Republicans who have some power and they hold to make specific threats against the president. What was interesting, what you said before, Matt, is that he seems to be against most of his advisors in the White House. Mm. The advisor who is probably most against this has decided to leave. Right. Um, right. In direct reflection to this choice. And so fewer and fewer advisors yep. that he has are going to be against the decisions he's making based on how he is changing his power structure inside the White House itself. Yep. That is kind of a new process that we haven't seen either. Sure. Normally, presidents will listen to their advisors on things and take that in. And again, all of this happens behind closed doors. But even Gary Cohen was saying hours before president before President Trump made the announcement, oh, that's not going to happen. And then right. it did, and then he decided it's time to go. Mm-hmm. But you can, I mean, you can definitely see kind of the power struggle that occurs in the EOP and the White House that involves the president, but isn't something, you know, these people aren't the president's henchmen. They aren't his clerks. They're part of the decision-making team. And you can see even after the president decided he was going to do this, Cohen, before he decided to quit, was marshalling industry executives right. to come in and try and persuade him otherwise. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're supposed to be here today. Right, that was going to be today. And then we heard the president was moving up this announcement and that's when that's when Cohen kind of threw in the towel and gave up but you know even the implementation of something of like this like President Trump can't write the reg himself right. he relies on other people to carry out these things and if those people have a different agenda you know they can go slow on him and they can try and fight him and it takes a president who's determined to do something to get these people to execute against their will and this isn't a Trump problem this is every president's problem but you know this is one of the first issues I've seen Trump where he seems hell-bent on getting them to do something they don't want to do and in that case the president can win but it requires determination and it requires him to give up a lot of capital. Right. And did you, I mean, have you seen what the European Union has put, the yeah. list the European Union has put together is what the countervailing uh, duties are going to put on and what they're going to put it on? No. Corn. Yes. Yeah. Peanut butter. Yeah, I saw Purdue was Orange not happy. juice. I mean, they're well, doing it on these my, different places that well, are One of my favorite of things was Harley-Davidson's and Harley. bourbon, right? <laughs> Which is Harley-Davidson's right. are made in Wisconsin. Right. And Mr. Ryan's Bourbon's district made and bourbon's made in Kentucky from yeah. Yeah. Mr. It's I saw, a, it's it's very interesting list of stuff. I saw yeah. a quote from Secretary Purdue at Agriculture, and he was kind of, you know, he gave, he's like, well, I support the president and the administration. He's like, but I have many concerns about what's going to happen to agriculture sector under this uh, this act. And and that's totally reasonable. And I think, uh, you know, secretaries of departments need to be 
forthright about defending their departments and their stuff like that. And uh, if it puts you at odds with the president, it puts you at odds with the president. But in this case, this is the kind of policy which is going to put a lot of people at odds with the president. So let's halfway transition into what the next thing we're going to talk about. Do we believe that there will be something about if President Trump moves forward today and actually puts the the 10% tariff on aluminum, right? right. Um, and 25%. My older son told me that we had some deal with the British and we're supposed to call it aluminum. And <laughs> we, in, in response, they agreed to do something for us. I can't remember what it was. Physics geeks, what are you going to do? Um, and 25% on steel. If he actually goes through with that on all countries except for Canada and Mexico as we do NAFTA, do we believe that on the omnibus there will be something? Uh- I would, I would have said, if it was the straight original plan, 25% across the board on steel, including Canada, I would have think Congress would have stepped in. Yeah. I, I, I do think that. And I actually think probably the threat of doing that may be what softened it for the North American countries. Now, I will say that the president's new line is that this is a bargaining chip for a renegotiation of NAFTA. Um, which for those two countries, right? For those two countries, which, 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 you know, you can, you can kind of, you can kind of see how there's something to that. It's a little bit of a heavy-handed way to go about renegotiating something for kinda sure. Undercuts your yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, I, I think it's going to be watered down enough today that Congress probably won't do anything. Um, but that's not to say Congress has been ineffective. I think. The, you know, this is a sign that Congress has been ineffective. I think Trump, had there been no kind of outcry from the Hill or from the executive branch or from private interest, would have just been like, well, 25% across the board, the Canadians too, and that's how it's going to be. Um, so my guess is that there's going to be enough exceptions and watering down of this that Congress probably won't do anything. If there's not, I would suspect they will. Yeah, I think it really depends on the order, right? If it comes right. down and it's like significant enough where it's like, oh, wow, well, that's a little bit more than just a symbolic proclamation. It's, yeah. it's, it's a pretty heavy-handed hit. Or it's like some kind of gesture that we're going to, you know, something along the lines of what he did with DACA. Like in the future, this is going to happen and we're doing this in the near future and like lays out some sort of plan. I can see them start to put the mechanics together where it's like, no, you won't, right? Or, you know, slip some language into uh, whatever relevant um, agencies like commerce, very, probably. yeah, probably commerce or you know, I'm sure there's some other things in there, but it's like you will not do these things or you will not execute these particular things because we don't have an interest in doing that. It's going to hurt us for a variety of. Different I mean, ways. I, I mean, I could totally see this becoming something that, on the kind of surface level, the president sells as America first tariffs on these things to home grow our industry and and rebuild these kind of you know strong old industrial bases. But on the on the actual merits, becomes something that looks much more like the Obama anti dumping tariffs against China or the Bush anti dumping tariffs against China, which are these kind of small efforts that you know are legitimate under the WTO and things like that. I, I the more this looks like across the board global tariffs on America, you know, on steel coming to the United States, the more I think Congress is likely to respond. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, maybe. I mean, there are. As we know with the omnibus itself, it's already starting to, to we're starting to get some outlines on it. I think the numbers are all easy. I think we can figure it out. We added a whole bunch of money to it. They're going to get the numbers right. It's other policy riders that are going to be a problem. Yep. And is this just one more that just weighs it down right. beyond the ability to get it passed? Well, here's the thing: is I don't think this is actually one that weighs it down. I think it's one that would actually give it some juice in some cases, right? I don't, with 100 Republican legislators, and you assume most Democrats, just for the sheer partisan purposes of it, um, would be on board with something like this. It's a lot different than, say, like a border wall or some of these other policy writers like Planned Parenthood. Um, well, where it say, actually, but it's not going to cancel a Planned Parenthood right. writer. No, right. it wouldn't cancel it. That's right. But I, I, don't, I don't see it as one of those like poison pill writers where all of a sudden you lose the support of the votes that you need in order to get the thing passed. Right. If you could make this germane as a motion to recommit, 
and the Democrats put in a motion to undo recent tariffs yeah. or whatever and wrote it correctly, would it really fail on the House floor? It's hard to imagine it would. Yeah. Yep. I, I think that's right. Um, and that might be an interesting vehicle. Right. No, I mean, they, they can, they can in theory, run the omnibus in a way that it's a ping-pong of already passed bills so they can avoid so a motion to recommit. No motion. So yeah. there's no motion to recommit, and they could do something like that. But I... I think that's an entirely open possibility. Now, again, there's obviously issues of germaneness with the motion to recommit, and it's not obvious that this would be inherently germane. The germaneness rules are really arcane and really detailed. But on the face, it looks – on a limitation amendment, it feels like it would be. Yeah, like yeah, no yeah. money can be used to implement uh, these recent POTUS tariffs that are crazy or whatever kind of bill. Yep. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I think I agree with Mark that uh, on the money, the omnibus is a done deal, and it's really the policy riders. And I, I – I still think immigration is the top line issue there. You know, you get the Planned Parenthood stuff and things like that, these kind of recurring ones that eventually get figured out. And sometimes that just involves a show vote in the House and a deal in the Senate kind of thing. But the immigration one is, I think, potentially still very sticky. And um, I would assume that stalemate is the ultimate kind of outcome in Congress, but is stalemate good enough for the president if we're talking about not a lot of border wall money? What's in the first draft is the question. And that's the, this is another question because it brings up the money issue, right? Sure, like the money could be sorted out unless you bring in $15, million, $15 billion for a border wall or something equivalent to a border right. wall where it's like a border wall plus fence plus technology plus agents, right? Um, then it's starting to get much more complex because all of a sudden you're shifting around money and that finite allotment for non-defense spending, um, which means that other agencies are going to get less than are possibly. Have out we there seen right the three hundred two Bs? Are they public? We have not, but what we've heard is that the, there are the three. The, so there are twelve different bills, and three of the sections, three of the bills, labor HHS, which is the biggest domestic one, um, DHS Homeland Security, which has the wall stuff, and I'm trying to remember what the third one is um there are three that they're they're having some issues with because of these riders mm. cgs i guess what on the judiciary side is that where the planned parenthood stuff would sit rather than hhs it's no, i can't remember off the top of my head but um that seems to be where you're and again it's not the dollar thing the appropriators will tell you you give me a number i will write you a bill right um, and I'll find a way to write a bill so that I can get a majority of the people as long as the number is robust enough. And obviously the number is incredibly robust because yep. they added $140 billion to right. the bill, $60 billion alone which on is that you know, 14, 12, 13, 14% higher. Right. Um, so the numbers aren't going to be the issue. But these these policy writers uh, can be very tricky. And I think Matt's right. Um, you know, we Very few of these we've not run the traps on before except immigration and the wall. Um, and it does have that feeling of it. Okay, March 5th has come and gone. Right. Um, the world has not ended. Uh, well, we haven't had... Court stepped in. Well, right, but but we haven't had, you know, thousands of people in the streets on immigration anymore. And so that issue seems to have faded. So I think Matt's right. Stalemate's probably most likely mm-hmm. to well, happen on that. My God, I'm here's looking at Here's the question, right? I mean, but how hard are Republicans going to push for a border wall? Because that just is a reflection of how much Repu- like Democrats might hold out for things like DACA or yeah, something along those I lines. Right? I don't think they can. Well, that's, the, I uh, think that's, I, the, that's a big question. I don't think they can sort this out. I right? still think like that $2 billion for border security that Trump can call a wall. It's not called a wall in the bill. Right. And Democrats can just talk about as border security. With no DACA seems like a very, not just fair, but obvious outcome of uh, how you can get through this on a stalemate level. Now, look, anyone can anyone can dig their heels in and grit their teeth and say no, and that can be the Democrats in the Senate, it can be the president, it can be anyone. Um, I'm looking through a, I'm looking through a CQ report right now, and I'm just laughing at seeing just kind of like the, the heavy hitters of recurring stuff. And so I see Yucca Mountain, yep. I see the Mexico City policy, yep. I see Planned Parenthood, yep. it just doesn't end. 
right? It's a, it's the same it's the same ride. The as old the, hits. Yes, exactly. Nothing 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 is new station. under the sun and appropriations. Um, but look, I think the bottom line is. I really see. I don't see a shutdown. Yeah. And the, I, I, I really don't. Now we've been so good about this so far. Ah, right. We said there'd be no shutdown the first time. It might <laughs> be the second time. Well, the question is that is not will there be a shutdown? Is will there be any riders? Right. I mean, we've been in this place before. We've seen this go around. Republicans are still averaging between 130 and 160, 170 votes in the House uh, for any omnibus legislation. Democrats still have a lot of leverage because they're still giving them votes, and it's going to be a matter of. If they're going to be writers in the bill, and if they are, which ones? Okay, and so let's kind of transition again because this really is the next question. Right. All of a sudden, electoral politics is going to start to to rear its head into this vote. Yep. You know, a lot of different Republican members right now are starting to look at primaries. Yep. And they're having to figure out: Am I going to vote for this big spending bill when I may have somebody run against me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you worry about the general later. But hell, we're just a little worried about primaries. We've had one set of primary elections so far in Texas. Yep. Um, and what do we see there? We saw an awful lot of Democrats come out to vote. But Texas has runoffs too, right? So it may and not. There, even, some people in Texas aren't even done, right? Right. Um, and so that could influence how many votes you see here too from the Republican side. Because for the last deal, we got what 170 Republicans, which was an awful lot. That was a yep. lot compared to the recent history and since 2011. Yep. That's, that's I all, credit that's Ryan a lot in that too. That's a well done job by the House leadership. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of twisting arms. Well, now, and you threw 140 billion dollars worth of money at the Department of Defense, which helped a lot, yeah. and also took their budget from 560 billion to 700 billion. That seemed to get some people over the line. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is a... They don't have that again. I think this is a super important thing to remember is that people always say, well, how are the upcoming elections going to affect kind of how Congress behaves this session? And of course they are, the upcoming elections, but also the current elections. I mean, the primary elections for many of these members are the one they worry about. When we talk about the House being polarized or, you know, some people want to say gerrymandered into all these safe seats. Well, they're only safe in a general election sense. Right. They, they create a secondary election, the primary election that a lot of members worry about uh, more so than their general election. And those are going on right now. Right. Uh, this is not kind of people say, oh, well, no one's going to vote for the CO. No one's going to vote for appropriations bills in September because it's right for the election. Well, how about now? Right. Vote for appropriations bill in the middle of election season um, and an election that to many members is one that scares them more. And so I do think it affects things. Um, and uh, I also think it, it encourages leaders to put messaging votes on the floor yep. uh, and, and, and to try and play those sorts of games uh, rather than substantive stuff. And this might be reason alone for Democrats to, uh, to hold out on things or to seek you know, motions to recommit on stuff like steel tariffs, right? Opportunity yeah. to embarrass people. Absolutely. I mean, we're moving away from the effective point in the Congress to the campaigning point in the Congress, right, where um, all of a sudden all of the political capital and time that you had on the congressional agenda is effectively over, right, where March is like the last month, April, sometimes things get done. It's really rare to pass like some huge, major, ginormous policy in like June or July or August, right, or yeah, September absolutely. or October. Um, although you see it every once in a while, it's certainly not normal, right, and this is um, – we're moving away from that effective sort of uh, we can get something done. We're going to work on some of the big items. And now we're going to move into this area where like the big bills every single week that are coming up under a rule in the House are going to be giant messaging bills. Um, and the stuff that actually gets passed that has significant impact, right, is going to be things of lower salience, mm-hmm. right? Things that don't stick out to people on elections, things that are hard yep. to explain. Uh, this is one of the reasons you have a banking bill on the floor of the Senate right now. Yep. Uh, it is a very, very, very complex issue. Uh, not a lot of people understand banking regulation. 
uh, or how it affects them at all or how it affects the financial system or the stability of the financial system. And so you have bipartisan majorities that support these things in Congress is something that you can get through the Congress fairly easily without too much fuss, right? We're going to see plenty of those bills, right? So the Congress in some ways is going to get much more effective, right? What, right. Over the next few months well, because they're going to be working on things that are lower hanging fruit. Right. Much more bipartisan. Effective will be... Will, will well, productive in the sense of they will pass bills that have a chance of becoming law in right. some ways. They're just not big ticket items, or at least they're not salient big ticket and, items. And the critical right. item is those red state Democrats who are up for re-election. Sure. For that. And they, yep. and they all pretty much are coming on board for this banking reform bill. Yeah. Right. Yep. And there's a, there's a new poll out that I saw that has a lot of the red state Democrats not looking so hot, like losing underwater and kind of against generic Republicans all over the place. But that's the key, and, um, right? Right. Against generic Republicans. Right. Only one of them was against the Absolutely. Republican. Absolutely. But that's still the kind of thing you have to remember is that as good as 2018 looks for the for the Democrats in general, and they have a strong chance of retaking the House, um, and even some chance of retaking the Senate, their their Senate prospects include a lot of defenses of seats that are quite shaky. Yep. Uh, quite shaky. And it also means that whenever Republicans do bring up some of this low-hanging fruit, there's the opportunity to get votes in the Senate mm-hmm. because these members, these senators in Montana and North Dakota and Wisconsin and Michigan, if they're feeling pressure, or Missouri, Indiana. are going to jump at the opportunity to work with the other sure, side. Sure, Brown going to jump at that banking bill. Gonna, right? oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, love, they love them some banking. Some like, red meat there. They're all over that banking bill. Because, again, um, they're taking care of their... Right. Not the medium-sized banks. These aren't the really small ones that are, t- that are part of this one. You're it depends on who you talk to about which bank what size. Right. Right. If size. you're talking to a liberal, this is the worst thing that's ever happened in right. the history of the universe. If you're talking to a conservative, this is like, yeah, it's tiny banks. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not a big deal. Um, so we have a huge data point coming up on Tuesday. Right? we got this uh, special election in Pennsylvania yep. in a district that yep. is similar to Alabama, not quite as red that as the Alabama. That recently moved to toss-up. Yeah, I mean, it, it, all indications seem to be, and you're watching the Republican campaign committee now starting to say, "Hey, it's not our fault. He didn't go raise money." I mean, they're already throwing the guy under the bus. See, I'm a, I'm a, well, the interesting I'm thing a about this, he's going to win this seat from March until November, right? And then, <laughs> right? And then he's got right. he will be elected in an entirely different seat, right? Match he wins and this is, right. this piece of turf that is now Pennsylvania 18 and is getting restructured, the actual ground that that sits upon is the one place in Pennsylvania that's going to become kind of a more solidly Republican than right. it was. So this is this looks like lamb for six months and right. then let's, out. Let's explain the Pennsylvania map for those who have not been <laughs> up right. on it. Right? 18 <laughs> districts. Right, 18 districts. Right, but the big the big ticket here is that uh, it spreads out the Democratic vote in a way that it wasn't before. Right. Previously, there were 18 uh, seats. 13 Republicans. Right, 13 of those 18 were Republican seats from Pennsylvania, despite the fact that the state is more or less a 50-50 state right. when you look at the, the partisan demographics. Um, Pennsylvania's Supreme Court court has come in said that you got to redraw the map they redrew the map based on like county lines and contiguity and a few other things um and basically it looks like democrats are going to have a pickup between five and seven seats right um in the pennsylvania uh, in the next election uh in, in 2018 simply because the districts are different right mm-hmm. um and so that that's a huge swing but it, that doesn't affect the pennsylvania 18 race which is right. under the old lines not, not by number that's correct right but right. lamb could still win the seat and end up in another district. right and he could go run a different district right but He's going to file because right. right. actually all the numbers get totally Yeah, changed. the numbers are different. Um, but so the and, and so part of the land that he's sitting in will actually end up in yes, a Democratic district. Absolutely. Um, and so that's I think what he's trying to. Yeah. To I mean, I, I'm I'm actually more skeptical of so the RNC and others are kind of throwing this under the bus and blaming the candidate and saying this is a lost cause. And I, I think there's a little bit of expectation setting here because I think if the Republican, what's his name, Sarcone? 
Sarcone. Sarcone. If if he holds on and wins by one or two, that's a devastatingly terrible result in this district for the Republicans. It's a holding of the seat, which is a good thing for them, but that's a terrible result in a district Trump won by twenty something yeah. points, right? That's a that's a terrible result. And uh given the expectation setting though, that might be seen as something that is actually a good result. So I'm a little skeptical of this idea that this race is over and that this is a shoe in for the Democrats and we can start the backbiting. I think a little bit of that is moving the goalposts to make sure that you know, if they do happen to pull this out, it's not seen as a negative. I think that's right. I, and there's a there's a very, very different story in terms of uh, losing, winning by one and losing by one, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you saw the, the aftermath of Doug Jones' victory in Alabama. It was crazy. Like, oh, my God, a Democrat won in Alabama. This is right. crazy. I mean, the headlines were very, very, very different than, say, some of these more local races or some of these other uh, special elections where the Republicans still winning, just not by as much, right? Yep. That's still a signal in the same direction of what all these other elections are. They just don't get the same play in the media because it's not an actual victory, right? Yep. Um, and so it is, I, I do think it's an expect, expectation game um, a little bit, especially among the RNC. And if they hold the seat, it's going to have no effective difference um, in Pennsylvania. If they get the seat, it'll have no effective difference in Congress whatsoever. <laughs> One vote for Democrats is just, Woo-hoo! yeah, exactly. You're mm-hmm. still squat in the minority in the House of Representatives. Yep. So you mean nothing still. Um, but the symbolic... Uh, uh, it seems to carry more weight among people in the media that, oh, well, they won. We can point to something in actual well, victory. But it, but it also gives a rallying cry for Democrats who want to come out to vote. They say, hey, look, mm-hmm. in this really red seat, we found a way to win. We just have to That's stay good. energized and yep. keep doing it. Yep. If you remember, at the beginning of, of 2017, the Democrats were really rallying and trying to win, and they kept losing seat after seat after yep. seat. They kept making them closer, but they kept losing in, yep. in Georgia and in these other special, South Carolina and these other special elections. They actually were able to tip, and they tipped one in Alabama, yep. and all of a sudden that got things energized. I mean, I think this could I, be an energizing yeah. moment. I also think that, like, you know, uh, the votes matter on election day, but what happens before election day matters too. If someone looks at this race, uh, who was thinking about running, who's a high-quality challenger and wants to take on a tough seat, you know that changes the playing field when you get a high-quality challenger to something that's uh, only a maybe pickup, right? As opposed to a situation where you have a maybe pickup, but no one really gets in and, and, and it never comes to fruition. And so the playing field of who's going to enter these races, the quality of the challengers can really change if they look and see, well, look, in a R plus 15 district or a Trump plus 15 district or whatever. Yeah, we're about what, a fourth, what are of, the the way, filing yeah. we're about a fourth right of the way through the filing deadline. Yep. Okay. And so, I mean, there's still so opportunities. There's still opportunities. There's still opportunities, and so this is still a signal to kind of high-quality people who may be considering getting in or not getting in. It's late in the game. But there's um, some big states still. I mean, Florida, yep. California. Yep. I mean, there's, so there's some places there. where they're still trying to get things together. Mm. So anyone have a, a parting shot for us? Josh, go. Uh, I do not have much of a parting shot. I do think immigration is going to be a pretty sticky issue, um, and I'm not sure how it's going to play out. Uh, on the one hand, like you can see Democrats pushing for more concessions. On the other hand, you can see Republicans backing off from border wall money, and I just don't know how it's going to play out. But um, in any event, I don't know that this is going to be one of those issues that's going to stop an appropriations bill like it has in the previous two iterations of the same yep. game. Right yep. there. So this could be a very historic weekend um, in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. <laughs> there are there's a uh, the there's a Sweet Sixteen for the Division Three men's basketball. Swarthmore is hosting it, and also playing in this 
is Hamilton College, which is Go Continentals. Go Continentals. Alma mater of Dr. Glassman here, and Ms. Swarthmore being my alma mater. So if they're not playing each other in the first round, but if they happen to play each other, yeah. I think we're going to have to put on the line yep. maybe a bottle of Woodford. To yeah, see, I, was, uh, I was thinking a case of local beer from, well, I don't know what they make in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> I, can get, I can get some from the Mass Factory, some Saranac. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure, we'll figure it, out. it out. But I think we're – so everybody should uh, go online on, on Friday night and take a look and see if – Swarthmore and, uh, and Hamilton both win, so they're on Saturday night we we got a little playing going on. Yep, and uh, I was going to finish up on guns. I uh, I think the the energy on guns still exists. I don't think the energy on guns exists in the United States Congress. Um, and I would maintain my prediction that if there's action on guns, you're going to see a lot of action at the state level, as you already have in Florida now, uh, raising the age by a long gun to 21. Um, which I think is you know a dubious kind of very partial measure, but it's something. I think you'll see a lot more action at the state level than you will in Congress. I don't expect any major gun legislation in Congress this year. Yep. Um, that's, uh, that's it for Congress Two Bears in this week. Thanks for joining us. This week, again, was brought to you by New Belgium Fat Tire, the greatest secret of Colorado until about seven years ago. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.